Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. I'm preaching on the resurrection on Christmas. Why am I doing that? Because I've been preaching through the Gospel of John for, for quite a while. And why pause just for one Sunday? So John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ. We pray now that as your word is preached, that it would bear much fruit in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I bet you can remember exactly what you were doing on September 11th, 2001. Some of you can probably also remember exactly what you were doing when you learned that the Challenger had exploded. Some of you can remember exactly what you were doing when you learned that President Kennedy had been assassinated. Some events in history are so monumental, they are etched into the memories of our mind, and we, we remember exactly where we were and what we were feeling and what we were doing. I imagine this to be the case with those who were witnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus, as well as the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul talks about how there were uh, those who were witnesses of Jesus and uh, of his uh, death and his resurrection. Listen to his words in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What Paul seems to be indicating here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that there is credible evidence, eyewitness evidence to the resurrection of Jesus and that he has actually talked with some of these people. He, he names them by name in 1 Corinthians 15 and also that there was a moment in time in which Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers in the early church, some of whom are still alive. The implication being, if you want to know if the resurrection happened, if you are struggling to have faith in the resurrection, go find some of these people and talk to them about what they witnessed to edify and build up your faith. The author Luke appears to be doing the same thing in the introduction of his gospel. Listen to what Luke writes in the beginning of his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So what is Luke saying? Luke is saying that he has gone and he has investigated the claims regarding the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He's interviewed those eyewitnesses and he has compiled them together, providing an orderly account surrounding the events of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, most especially the eyewitness testimony, and he, just like Paul, have inscripturated that eyewitness testimony for the benefit of the church throughout all of history. The Apostle John in John's Gospel is no different. Here in our passage today, he is providing the eyewitness testimony from a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. He provides an account of Mary's interaction with Jesus. And by the way, John wasn't there. So at some point, he must have sat and talked with Mary and she would have shared with him all of the account of what you read in this passage in verses 11 through 18. And here John provides that information for us. Mary's eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. That we all may have faith in the resurrection. So what did John learn when he investigated Mary's eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection? Let me pull out three things from the narrative of this passage. Then we'll look at some of the theology of this passage and then... I'll make a couple of words of application in this passage. So let's look first at the narrative of this passage. And what Mary would have communicated to John when she spoke with him is that she did not at first have faith in the resurrection. <laughs> she did not have faith at first in the resurrection. She didn't believe in it. She goes to the tomb where Jesus had been buried and she expects to find Jesus' body there at the tomb. If you've ever visited the grave of a loved one or a friend, 
You know, those are very tender moments as you stand there over the remains of a family member or a friend or a loved one, and you think about their life, you think about all that they meant to you while they were living, you miss them, you wish that they could see what's happened to you, wish they could see your family, wish they would know about your accomplishments. And, and oftentimes those are very tender moments where an individual is standing there at the grave and they are in grief and oftentimes moved to tears. In verse 11, Mary is having one of those very human experiences. We read in verse 11 that she is standing outside the tomb and she is weeping. In fact, several times, four times in this passage, the word wept is used. She is overcome by grief. She is full of tears. She is full of sorrow. Why? She was, she was there at the cross. John records for us that Mary Magdalene was there. She saw Jesus crucified. She heard his final words when he was upon the cross. She was there when he died. She would have seen the Roman soldiers cast the nail or the spear into the side of Jesus and observe the blood and the water flow. She was overcome in grief by all of this. And she is outside the tomb and she is weeping. How long was she there? We don't know. But at some point, she stoops down into the tomb peers into the tomb, and what does she see? Does she see a body? No. One of the kids said nothing. Look what John records in verse 12. And can you imagine Mary recounting this story for John? Mary, what was it that you saw when you looked into the tomb? Well, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laid, one at the feet and one at the head. She looks into the tomb. She is expecting to see that the body has been stolen and taken away. And as she looks into the tomb, what does she see but two angels in white? Must have been a glorious and spectacular sight. Oftentimes throughout Scripture, when a person sees an angel, they are overcome with fear. They think they're going to die. They're tempted to fall down at the angel's feet and, and worship. We're not, recorded any, we're not told any of those reactions from Mary, but she must have gone on weeping because the angels ask her in verse 13, why are you weeping? This is a bit of a gentle reproof from these angels, isn't it? Mary, there's no reason for you to stand here at this tomb and be weeping and be filled with grief and sorrow. Jesus had told you that he was going to be crucified, that he would be buried, and then he would be resurrected. He had made that very plain. He had made it very clear. And so when you come to the tomb, Mary, when you arrive at the tomb and you find it empty, you shouldn't be filled with grief and sorrow, assuming that thieves have come and taken the body. You should assume that Jesus has been resurrected. Rather than being filled with grief and sorrow, Rather than weeping, you should be leaping for joy. You should be praising God. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them. 
they said to her. And what does she reply? Why is she weeping? They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. This is the same testimony that she gave earlier in the chapter to Peter and John. She had gone to the tomb early in the morning, and she arrived at the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed, and she just assumed that someone had come and taken the body. Who's the they? Do you see that there in this verse 13? They have taken him away. They've taken away my Lord. Who's the they? Who does she suspect of having stolen the body of Jesus? The Romans? The Sanhedrin? Thieves? We aren't told who she suspected. But she just assumes that thieves have come and they have taken away the body and now she does not know where Jesus' body is laid. And she is full of grief and she is full of sorrow for no reason. Because Jesus had resurrected just as He had said. So there's the closing of that first scene, right? There's the end of that first part of Mary's testimony as John is recording this information. And you can imagine John saying, well, what happened next? Well, let's see what happened next. Look at verse 14. She turned around and she sees whom? She sees Jesus. Jesus is there standing, but look at verse 14. She doesn't know that it's Jesus. Here she is looking for Jesus, looking for the body of Jesus. She can't find him anywhere. And now here is Jesus standing before her, the very one that she's looking for. You've got to love the irony. And she doesn't know that it's Jesus. Why doesn't she know that this is Jesus? Were her eyes like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Were her eyes kept from seeing Jesus? It's probably the case. She's not yet been given the eyes of faith to see Jesus. She's going to need the eyes of faith to see Jesus, to truly see Jesus as resurrected. Jesus says to her in verse 15, same question from the angels, plus another question, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Why are you here at the tomb all sad and full of tears and grief? There's no reason for you to weep. You should be rejoicing. Who did you expect to find in this grave? Jesus is saying. You shouldn't expect to find me in this grave, is what Jesus is saying. I told you that I would resurrect from the dead. And now the tomb is empty. Mary then supposes Jesus to be the gardener, and then she suspects the gardener of being a co-conspirator in the theft, in, in the stealing of Jesus' body. Look at what she says to him. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. She is suspecting everyone now of being in on it. And she assumes that perhaps this gardener had helped to move the stone away from the mouth of the tomb and taken the body away. Perhaps the Roman government had paid this gardener. Perhaps the Sanhedrin had paid this gardener. And she is suspecting this gardener of being a co-conspirator to stealing away the body of Jesus. But the moment that Jesus calls Mary by name, she receives faith. 
Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. You can say a lot with one word, can't you? Mary Magdalene, here before Jesus calls her by name, she is spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. She is having a conversation with Jesus and she doesn't know she's having a conversation with Jesus. She is seeing Jesus and she does not know that she is seeing Jesus. She can see and hear, but she can't see and hear. Her eyes must be opened. Her ears must be opened. And so Jesus simply calls her by name and she receives faith in an instant. Just like that, the scales fall off her eyes and she goes right into confessing Jesus as Lord. Look at what she says. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is a term of great affection and respect and endearment that she's giving to Jesus. Now she recognizes Jesus. Before, she did not have faith to see Jesus, but now she is filled with faith, and she confesses Jesus as Lord. Mary probably could have written the first verse of Amazing Grace. You know it. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was what? Lost. But now I'm found. Once was what? Blind. But now I see. Mary Magdalene, that's her story. (laughs) She's trying to find the body of Jesus and she is lost. She is standing before Jesus and she can't see him. She is speaking with Jesus and conversing with him and she can't hear Jesus until the moment Jesus calls her by name. And in a single instant, she receives faith in the resurrection. What does that do for her? What happened next, Mary? Well, read on with me in verse 17. Jesus gives her some instructions. You can imagine her grief turning to joy, and it's not hard to imagine her desiring to rush to embrace Jesus, to to hug Him or to fall down at His feet, kissing His feet and worshiping Him. And what does Jesus tell her in verse 17? Do not cling to Me. It's interesting, isn't it? She must have been overcome with emotion. I would imagine that she still continued crying. (laughs) But now her tears of sorrow have been turned to tears of joy. And Jesus has to tell her, don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended to my Father. Things are about to change, Mary. No longer will your interactions with me be the same. Once you walked and talked with me, you ate with me and you served me, but now your fellowship and communion with me will be through the Holy Spirit. Don't cling to my body, is what Jesus is saying. I'm ascending up to my Father. The work is going to be completed, is what He's saying. But, Mary, you're to do something with this information. What is she to do with it? Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That word there, sent for Mary, that word there for go, is the same word that's used of the angels, actually. 
They are the sent ones. They come bearing news and information, good news and good information, and they are sent with the most extraordinary news in all of human history. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And like the angels, Mary is now sent on a remarkable mission to share that good news, and she has been commissioned by her Savior to do that. Go and tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And what does Mary Magdalene do? Does she go and find Jesus' brothers and tell them that Jesus has been resurrected? What does the text say? The answer is yes and no. (laughs) Did she go and find Jesus' brothers and tell them that he had been resurrected? On one hand, no. She did not go find Jesus' brothers. We've been introduced to Jesus' brothers earlier on. Jesus' brothers initially did not have faith in Jesus. So who does she go and share this good news with? Jesus' spiritual brothers. The disciples. She goes and she finds the disciples and she says what? I have seen the Lord and she shared the rest of the information with them. It's a remarkable story, isn't it? What is John trying to teach us here? I think there's three, three things that I want to draw out from this passage. Three very uh, rich theological truths that provide the foundation for our faith. Our faith is built upon the resurrection. Our faith is built upon a historical event. Yes, we really believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. We believe that truly happened and that there is credible evidence to make our faith real and informed. So three truths. I want you to see here that when we receive faith, we become a new creation in Jesus. When we receive faith, we become a new creation in Jesus. John, if you, if you open up the Gospel of John and you just study it broadly, what you'll see is John is setting up for us a, a biblical theology of creation. Let me just draw some parallels for you. In the prologue of John's Gospel, how does John's Gospel begin? Well, it begins the same way that Genesis 1 begins, or I should say similarly. In the beginning was the Word. And John is, he's, he's, do you hear the echo of Genesis 1? In the beginning, God, what? Created, right? So what John is doing in his gospel is he is connecting the two. He's connecting Genesis 1, that God is the creator of all things, and he is connecting that to the person of Jesus, all right? He's saying that Jesus is God. He's the eternal God. And just as God in Genesis 1 spoke all of creation into existence, so too Jesus is the Word of God, the eternal Word of God. Just as the first day of creation began in darkness, what's the first thing that God said? God said, let there be what? Light. Jesus is described in John chapter 1 as being the light of the world. He is the light that shines in the darkness of sin. Here in John chapter 20, I can't help but to think of this contrast of light and darkness as Mary 
She comes to the tomb early in the morning, and John records for us in verse 1 that it was still what? It was still dark. You see John's play on words there, right? It's dark because it's early in the morning, but that's not the only reason it's dark. It's also dark because this is the first day of a new creation. Jesus told his disciples he would be resurrected on what day? The third day. Three days later, I'll rise again, Jesus told his disciples. And when the disciples recorded the resurrection of Jesus, what day did they say Jesus resurrected? Go back and look at verse 1 in your Bibles. On the first day of the week. Well, was it the third day or the first day? The answer is yes. This is the first day of the new creation. Jesus has conquered death, hell, and sin. And He has been resurrected from the dead. And He is the first fruits of a new creation. It's interesting that the passion event, the setting for the significant events regarding the passion of Jesus, they all happen where? In a garden. Jesus is betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He is gathered with his disciples at night. There's the darkness again. He's arrested under the cover of darkness. And where is he gathered with his disciples at the moment of his arrest? He's in a garden. And then when Jesus is buried in a tomb, where is the tomb located? The tomb is located in a garden. And then finally, when Mary sees Jesus resurrected, who does she mistake Jesus to be? The gardener. Are you connecting all the dots here? You see the new creation theology that John is setting up for us. Jesus is the firstborn of a new creation. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, God establishes angels. He sets up angels so that Adam and Eve cannot go back into the garden. But here in this garden in John chapter 20, angels are here to announce the good news and to welcome Mary back into the garden that she would see the resurrection. Instead of a woman being deceived in Genesis chapter 3, in John chapter 20, a woman receives the eyes of faith for the good news of the gospel. And unlike Adam who failed In his test in the garden, Jesus completes his test in the garden. And rather than receiving the punishment of death like Adam and Eve, Jesus receives eternal life. And he can declare what? He is going to be ascended into glory. This is the reason why when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about... uh, about conversion in John chapter 3, what what does he tell him? You must be what? Born again. You have to be a new creation, is what Jesus is saying. When we receive faith, we become a new creation in Jesus. Secondly, I want you to see here that when we receive faith, We receive faith because we are effectually called by the Spirit. When does a person receive faith? 
when Jesus calls you? When does a person, when do the scales fall off their eyes and when do their ears become open? Same as Mary. At the appointed time when Jesus, by the power of His Spirit, calls you by name. So much can be said in a single word in verse 16. Here is Mary Magdalene. She is confused. She does not understand what's happening. She doesn't recognize Jesus. But the moment Jesus does what? He simply calls her by name. She has faith to see Jesus. Do you remember what John, Jesus had said of himself, the analogy he used of himself in John chapter 10? He is what? The good shepherd. And the good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep. And because he has laid down his life for the sheep, he knows his sheep. And then what does he do? He calls them. And he doesn't just give them a general call. He does what? He calls them by name. And when the shepherd calls his sheep by name, they hear his voice and they come to him. In verse 16, here is one of Jesus' sheep. <laughs> Jesus has just laid down his life for her. And Jesus simply calls her by name and she receives new life. In theology, we call this effectual calling. Effectual calling. What does that word effectual mean? It means how effective is it? The, the calling God, how effective is it? If you take a prescription, if you have a horrible uh, head cold, and you're going to take some Benadryl and Advil, wonderful medicines, by the way, you're going to wonder how effective are these medications? Well, they're very effective. How effective is the call from God when you receive faith? It's 100% effective. That's how good it is. It, every single time God calls someone by name, every single time the Spirit calls one of Jesus' sheep by name, that call is 100% effective. Westminster Shorter Catechism describes effectual calling this way. It is a work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery. See, before God calls us, we don't even know that we're in sin and misery. We are spiritually blind. We are spiritually dead. And what happens when the Spirit calls us? He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Finally, we can understand, truly understand, and have the eyes of faith. He renews our wills so, so that we can be persuaded and enabled to embrace Jesus Christ as He's freely offered in the Gospel. You see, before we come to faith in Christ, we are unable to receive the offer of salvation. You can't do it. Just like Mary Magdalene who is here speaking with Jesus and looking at Jesus, she cannot see or hear Jesus until he calls her by name and she receives the gift of faith. When we receive faith, we receive faith by effectual calling by God's Spirit. Thirdly, I want you to see that when we receive faith, we are immediately adopted in Jesus Christ. We are immediately adopted into Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine the courtroom scene that so many of us are familiar with 
where there are orphans seated there before a judge. And the judge looks at those parents, those adopting parents, and that judge, with the sign of his pen, he declares that the legal status of those orphans has changed. That's what he does. The legal status of those orphans have changed, and they are now adopted into a family. They're no longer orphans. They are no longer without a family. The moment the judge signs that document, they are immediately received into a family. Their legal status has changed. And what you need to know this morning is that when you and I receive faith, we were immediately received into God's family. Our legal status had changed. Look at what Jesus tells Mary to tell the disciples in verse 17. In verses 18, notice the contrast. I've already drawn it out. Jesus says, go and tell who? Go and tell my brothers. And then who does she go and tell? She goes and tells the disciples. Well, when did the disciples become Jesus' brothers? You see, they've been adopted into the family. And now they have a father in heaven. Jesus draws the distinction, right? It is his father he's ascending to, but it's also now what? It's their father. He's ascending to his God and to whom? Their God as well. They've been adopted. They've been received into the family. Their legal status has been changed. John describes this in John chapter 1. He's returning back to a theme in John chapter 1 where he describes this in verses 12 through 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what happens when we're born again. That's what happens when we become a new creation in Christ. We are adopted into God's family with a right to all the inheritance in Jesus Christ. John describes this. He continues in John 1, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of whom? Of God. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, the Shorter Catechism says, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. It's a marvelous truth. And John is drawing that out for us here in this passage. So what difference does this make? You might be wondering that. Okay, pastor, great. New creation, effectual calling, adoption. What difference does all this really and truly make? Let me just draw out three words of application for you. Number one, be confident that any Christian can share the gospel. You see that? The importance of that here? Mary is elevated for us. Mary Magdalene is elevated for us as uh, one of exemplary virtue who receives the good news and she goes and she has the faith to go and share it. Don't miss how remarkable this is in this passage. In the ancient world, the testimony of a woman was not admissible in court. She's not a credible witness in the eyes of John's culture. And yet she's seen the Lord, and so she goes. Secondly, 
Mary Magdalene should have never been the one to go and share this. If you were going to send a woman, it wouldn't have been Mary Magdalene. Luke records for us that there were a number of women who supported the ministry of Jesus from their own means. They had been healed from many infirmities. And Mary Magdalene is pointed to in the Gospel of Luke as one from whom Jesus had done what? Sent out seven demons. This is a woman who has encountered the grace and the mercy of God. And because of that, she is confident to go and share the gospel. And the same is true for us, isn't it? When we have received the grace and the mercy of God, it, it motivates us. It is good news to be shared. So be confident that any Christian can share the gospel. Secondly, be confident in the Spirit's work in your testimony. What happened when Mary Magdalene went and shared this news with the disciples? Does anyone know? It's not recorded in John's Gospel, but Luke tells us in Luke 24.11, listen to their reaction, Luke 24.11, these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So here is Mary Magdalene. She has seen Jesus. She has talked with Jesus. She has heard Jesus. She has probably touched Jesus all after the resurrection. She has been sent by Jesus to share this good news. She goes to the disciples of Jesus to share this good news. And when she tells them, they think it's, they think it's hogwash. They think it's an idle tale. They don't believe it. They don't put their faith in the news that she has shared with them but they will. <laughs> when are they going to put their faith in this news? When the Spirit opens their hearts. The Spirit is going to do a work in their hearts. So be confident, Christian, when you share the testimony, your job is not to overcome every objection that a person has. Your job is to share the good news and pray that the Spirit does His work. Work. And thirdly, I want you to know you and I ought to be confident in our new identity in Christ. We've been adopted into God's family. And there are times in our life when we will feel worthless. There are times in our life when we will lack self esteem. There will be times in our life when we feel isolated, alone, abandoned neglected, and you ought to open John chapter 20 and see that you've been adopted into the family of God. And that your life has meaning not only because you've been created in the image of God. That alone is enough to give value and meaning to any person's life. But if you have been brought to faith, not only are you created in the image of God, but you have been adopted into the family of God. And you can have great confidence that all of God's promises will be brought forth in your life. And with that, let us go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we ask you, Lord, that you would remind us of these great truths that many of us already know, but give us greater confidence, we ask, Lord. 
Give us greater confidence in the resurrection. Give us greater faith. Give us a boldness to go and share the Gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.